I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd wherever podcasts are available. You ready? All right, cool. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us here on Reppin. I'm Evelyn, your host. As we find ourselves in one of the most consequential elections of our time, my next guest has been involved in heated debates as a frequent CNN political commentator, as well as an ABC News political contributor. She's a former GOP communications director on Capitol Hill, a 2020 Harvard Institute of Politics resident fellow, and she's one of the senior advisors for The Lincoln Project. She's appeared on Good Morning America, Nightline, and guest hosts The View. She's also made numerous appearances on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher and was recognized by Vulture.com as one of 2016's top 20 election coverage stars. Despite the fact that she is a lifelong conservative adhering to the traditional Republican values, she's stepping up and speaking out against the current administration and her own political party. She's currently the host of the podcast called Honestly Speaking with Tara. Today, we're going to see her outside the political ring. The gloves are off as we sit down with Tara Setmayer. Tara, first and foremost, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. A loaded question. How are you? <laughs> you know, I'm actually wonderful, fantastic and marvelous, which is my my husband's family motto. And uh, we try to stay very positive in this ha- in this household because you have to be. This is a crazy world that we live in now, but to steal a line from Hamilton, what a time to be alive. So thank you so much for having me. And uh, I'm thrilled to have this conversation. And what a great way to kick things off. So give us a formal introduction of your background and, and sort of how people may know you. Folks may know me from my tell it like it is commentary on CNN. 
which is pretty much where the national audience was introduced to me and my point of view during the 2016 election cycle. Since then, I have continued to be what I call a sane conservative voice, <laughs> push, pushing back against the insanity that has occupied the White House since <laughs> January of 2017. <laughs> and, you know, it's really been pretty remarkable watching things unfold. I've, I've been involved in politics for about 25 years. As someone who lives and breathes politics, I chose to go to college at George Washington University in the epicenter of political power in D.C. because of my passion for politics. So I've lived and breathed this stuff since I was 18. I've also guest hosted The View several times as we are now in the in the heart of the, this election cycle, which personally I believe is the most crucial election in this country since probably the Civil War. I've been a senior advisor for the Lincoln Project. And when the Lincoln Project started at the end of 2019, I don't think a lot of the co-founders thought it, it would become the movement that it's become. It's very encouraging to see that we've been able to give voice to millions of people who have felt politically homeless in this in this time. So my my work over at the at the Lincoln Project has been really rewarding. It's also been cathartic right. because it allows us to go on offense without any restraint. <laughs> yeah. So you haven't been busy at all, have you? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. It's been a very dull and uneventful. Sleepy. Years. <laughs> I want to be clear that you have been a lifelong Republican. And yeah. let us know what the Lincoln Project is, because I know you're the senior advisor to that organization. Right. Yeah, I'm one of them. We have a team of senior advisors and I was one of the one of the first. So Yes, I have been a lifelong, I will always say I'm a lifelong conservative before Republican because the conservatism represents more of my worldview and my principles versus the Republican part of it is really the political party and power in which you exercise your political agency. And so I have never been shy about criticizing the party as a whole for things that it's done or hasn't done over the years. But my conservatism is really what more defines me. Now, more than ever, I never really thought that I would be as uh, in opposition to what the Republican Party has done and what it's become and what it represents now. And if you would have asked 18-year-old Tara, who was vice chairman of the George Washington University College Republican chapter, if she would be actively fighting against a Republican incumbent president to elect a Democrat, right. <laughs> you, I, I would have looked at you like you were absolutely insane. So <laughs> it's been quite a shift, which brings me full circle to the Lincoln Project, which is also another group of disaffected Republicans, lifelong. And many of them were uh, consultants for presidential campaigns, right. uh, by, you know, Republican campaigns. They also were spent their lives helping to elect Republicans, so their professional lives. And they made a decision that the, the current trajectory of the Republican Party and the, the current administration was so dangerous to the health of our constitutional republic that they needed to take their skills and experience and collectively figure out a way to, to make sure that Donald Trump doesn't spend another four years in the White House. Those people included some well-known Republicans. If you watch MSNBC, you're familiar with Rick Wilson and Steve Schmidt, George Conway, the husband of Kellyanne Conway, who has become a very vocal and fierce opponent of Donald Trump. Right. And Jennifer Horn, who is the former Republican chair for New Hampshire, and Mike Madrid, who is also very high level in the California Republican Party. 
and John Weaver, who worked for Kasich, John Kasich and in Ohio politics and McCain and things like that. Right. So those were the original founders. And they said, we've got to do something. Oh, and Reed Galen. I, I can't forget Reed. They came together and said, we've got to do something. And it has turned into this movement because Rick Wilson is a ad provocateur extraordinaire. Anyone who knows, familiar with Rick Wilson and his book, Everything Trump Touches Dies, which is the <laughs> most apropos title of any book ever written in this era, because it applies to just about everything. <laughs> just about, I mean, everything. He, he was talking about politics and we joke all the time about, he goes, I never thought that it would apply to so many things. Yeah, okay. Nuts from careers to like literally people now under this administration. So it's, it's wild. So, you know, putting out the ads and basically going on offense as far as hitting back against all of the corruption and the dishonesty and the indecency that this administration has represented in uh, over the last few years. We're just trying to hit the bully back in the mouth. Oh, that's a good phrase. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you have to. That's what we're doing. And it, we've had millions of donors and average Americans who have never felt more compelled to be involved. A lot of people feel like, what can we do? You know, it's just this environment is just so um, combative. It's a little cuckoo bananas. That's putting it nicely. It's batshit crazy, really, every day. And the Lincoln Project gives folks an avenue to feel like they're part of the resistance. We have a podcast and we have a live stream, we have a YouTube channel, and, and then obviously our ads. Let's peel all of this back. Before you became this sort of political spitfire, Tell me a little bit about your background. I understand also that you were mixed heritage. Your mom is German-Italian and your father is Afro-Guatemalan. So growing up in the Northeast, I mean, I've shared many times on my podcast, uh, I grew up in one of the boroughs of New York City, which is very different than growing up in the city. Do you remember some of the early, maybe defining experiences that you had that really imprinted some values that you still hold with you today? So my mom was a single parent. She had me at 21 and my mom was in show business. She was on Broadway. She was a professional dancer and singer. She'd been in many productions. So when she made the decision to have me at 21, it was a really courageous decision to make because she could have easily made a different one. And it meant basically the end of her performing career. But she felt it was worth it and um, decided to have me. She raised me as a single mom until I was 15, and then that's when she married my stepdad. So I grew up in a house with my my mom and my grandparents, and in a very blue-collar, middle-class, predominantly white North Jersey. That was the environment I grew up in. My, my grandfather was captain. He was one of the first police officers in the Paramus Police Department, and he served for f almost 40 years and retired as captain. My grandmother, who... <laughs> The set mayor women are known as spitfires. So I come from a line of feisty, smart, no BS women. I love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud to carry that bloodline. My grandmother with her Italian blood and my grandfather, he was from Germany. His parents actually came through Ellis Island, as did my, my grandmother's. Oh, cool. I do have the manifest, actually, a copy of the manifest of my great-grandmother and my grandfather's brother and sister coming through Ellis Island. I, I bought it for That's him for Christmas so cool. one year. Yeah, I went to the Ellis Island Foundation, typed in my last name, Setmayer, and here, it, you know, up it came. And it was really, really cool to see that. To finish with my grandfather, so he, a World War II veteran, police officer, 
and a volunteer fireman. And he stayed active in all of those things in some capacity until he passed away at 90. He marched in every single 4th of July parade from 1947 until his last one in 2016. And he passed away literally 10 days after that. Now, my grandmother, she was quite the looker, as my grandfather would say. And (laughs) she was smart and she was a dog person. She trained German shepherds in field and rescue and obedience. And my grandmother was about five feet tall. And she was tough as nails. I used to call her a tough cookie when I was little. I was like six. I was like, my grandma's a tough cookie, (laughs) which I thought was the most hilarious thing ever. So she was petite and powerful. Yes, she was in all ways from, from brute strength to her mouth. She didn't take any shit from anybody. And so my mom jokes that I get my sharp skills in debating and no nonsenseness from my, from my grandmother originally down through my mom who doesn't play around either. It's in your blood. That's right. But my grandmother, so she worked with, with animals. And um, as she got older and couldn't handle shepherds anymore, she switched over to Pomeranians. And my grandmother was in the dog show business. So anyone who's ever seen the movie Best in Show, yeah, it is very accurate. As absurd <laughs> as all of those storylines are and the comedic value of it, I grew up in that environment. From the time I was six years old, I started going to dog shows with my grandmother. And, and I joke with people that I learned politics from dog shows. That was my first exposure to really political back and forth and political dynamics. How did you learn politics from dog shows? Help me connect those Uh, dots. I don't know if any of your listeners have ever been involved in the dog show world, but it's really uber competitive. And the relationships between the handlers and the owners of the dogs, the different kennel clubs, the competition with the other handlers. It's very political. Massaging relationships and being able to promote your dog. And it's just the the inner dynamics of who said what and how to massage those relationships. There's a certain level of, of absurdity in, involved no, in that as well. Absolutely. But I, I didn't know. I was eight, you know, <laughs> spending all those weekends every summer with my grandmother, learning how she navigated that whole environment was a a fascinating life lesson that I didn't appreciate until I actually got into politics. And I looked back and I realized, I'm like, I've been in, I've been in these environments since I was a kid, because this is a lot like dog shows. Um, And I even showed dogs. I was a junior handler from the time I was 10 until I was 14. I showed papillons. I would have never known. It is the most random fact about me. Can you share an anecdote or maybe a particular experience that you had that was challenging, but what did you walk away with? My mom was a single parent, so we were best friends and we still are. I, I talk to my mom like five times a day. And I still, every major decision I make in my life, my mom has been involved in. And one of the adjustments when I got married, I didn't get married till I was 38. One of the adjustments was like, I actually have someone else now that I can talk to and confer with in my husband <laughs> um, instead of just my mom. My mom is incredibly influential in everything that defines me. I mean, it was not easy to be a single mother at 21 in those days. She didn't have a high school degree, a high school diploma because she was in show business, went back and got her GED. I was the first person in my family to ever go to college. Watching how my mom did whatever she had to do to make sure that she provided for me was very inspiring. We didn't have a lot of money but, but my mom taught me very, very young 
to never be a victim of your circumstance. And that was in, and, and that I could be and do whatever I wanted, that there was absolutely no limitation and to never, ever let anyone bully me into silence, that if I had something to say, say it. If I didn't know, ask. And if she didn't know the answer, we would find out together. And that level of inquisitiveness and curiosity and communication and trust between my mom and I at a very young age shaped everything about who I am today. And I can remember very clearly my mom telling me a story. I couldn't have been more than, I don't know, five or six years old. She told me a story about when she lived in New York because my mom lived in New York City as a, you know, as a showbiz person. You know, New York was a tough place in the 70s. Yeah. And she told me the story about this woman who had been, it's a little bit of morbid story, but it's appropriate. <laughs> there was this woman who had been stabbed by this guy who was in the neighborhood, stabbed her, and she was bleeding out. He left her for dead. And she crawled to multiple houses, brownstones in Queens, begging for help. And not one person would open the door. And the assailant ended up coming back and realizing that she was still alive and finished her off and killed her. And she, de she died on the front step of someone's doorstep that wouldn't open the door to help her. My mom said, never be that person that's afraid to get involved. Because if one person had had the courage and strength to just open the door and help her, that woman would probably be alive today. Ooh. That stuck with me very early. And, and the lesson was just never be afraid to get involved. Like when you see that something is not right or there's an injustice, get involved. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Are you thinking about getting into Dungeons & Dragons? Maybe you're looking to expand your horizons as a DM or a player. If that's the case, then it's time for you to check out The Dungeon Cast, the best D&D podcast out there that helps you passively learn all about the game just by listening. Find The Dungeon Cast anywhere you get podcasts or on YouTube. That started very young for me. From the time I started going to school, I was always that person that saw, like, you know, the kid on the side that wasn't really being talked to or they were bullied or whatever, I would make sure I befriended them and I would, you know, be an encourager. I was just, because my mom was always an encourager. She was um, that kind of a person. It was definitely divine providence and probably spoken over my life very young that I would end up in politics and end up in a situation where my voice has a lot of influence over lots of people. I never thought it would be in this capacity, but it, it started very young for me and it came very natural to me because my my mom was encouraging of that. So that was a, a point in my life, my young life, where 
I knew that I was always going to be that person who stood up for people who didn't have the courage or confidence to stand up for themselves and hopefully inspire them to eventually be able to do that. Seems like that feisty spirit was uh, passed down through (laughs) generations. Uh, It has. I, I will give you one example. The first real adversity that I faced as when I realized that I was different than everyone else. Yeah. It was in fourth grade. I had a teacher who clearly had a problem with me and we just couldn't figure out what it was. And I was always a very outgoing kid and, you know, I I did very well in school, but there came a time where I didn't want to go to school anymore because this teacher was so mean to me. And I just didn't understand why. Like she would pick on me or she would like say just discouraging things. And I remember one day that I asked a question, how to spell the word radiator. And she was like, can't you just say heater? And I was like, what? You're, you're supposed to be encouraging us to like be our best. And she snapped at me because I wanted to use a, a bigger word to describe something. And whatever we were doing, radiator was apparently the appropriate term for what I wanted to express. She was just, she cut me down for it. And my mom was like, okay, what the hell is going on here? And my mom went to school and um, there was like a social worker and everything involved. So this was like a big thing. It was a big thing. I was the only person of color in my entire school. And I mean, we had diversity in other ways. We had like Southeast Asian kids. So, you know, we had like Indian American kids and we had a lot of um, Korean kids. Like that was the, the, the main minorities in my school. But that was it. But even that was like a sprinkling. Though, correct. Right? Correct. It was 90 percent. And I never and like I said, I never really saw myself as any different until that year where it was almost unspoken that it was clear she had a problem. There was really no other explanation for why she had a problem with me. So what happened? So my mom, like, you know, being able to kind of talk that through with my mom and and bringing in like the school social worker to kind of reinforce that it wasn't me, it was the teacher. That was the only time that I, like, I had a question about like, why am I being singled out? And ever since then, I kind of never... I just made a decision. I was like, I'm not going to let anybody ever make me feel like that again. Like, I'm not going to let anyone make me feel inadequate for any reason. Like, get the hell out of here. And I had never felt like that before until that teacher. And it just shows you how influential teachers can be. Um, Most of the time, they're positive influences. And in that instance, it was she wasn't one of the good ones. And thankfully, she was really the only one I ever encountered like that throughout my my uh, public school days. But that was an interesting dynamic because it was the first time I kind of had to face the fact that there may be a reason because of the color of my skin that someone was treating me as though I were lesser than. It gave you sort of a different vantage point to understand the challenges, to say the least, of minorities and what it feels like. Yeah to be treated differently, to have yeah, all of the done. things that comes with the, the the challenges and disparities of being a minority. Yeah, I think she was, I think she had a problem with the fact that my mom was a single parent of a uh, non-white child. I was an anomaly, and but I wore my anomaly proudly. Yes. I loved being an other. You couldn't put me in a box. And my mom, right. she always encouraged me to be a non-conformist. She's like, why do you want to be like everybody else? So that was an interesting experience as a, as a young kid. I feel like those traits, you're, you're embracing, um, A, your lineage, your, your fiery, outspoken spirit, your understanding of your mom encouraging you to 
never be afraid to speak out mm-hmm. and to fight for somebody else or what you believe is right. Right. And also, I feel like this one particular instance, even though it was, you know, very early on and it sucked that it was a teacher. Yeah. But it gave you a perspective of understanding what it feels like to be on the receiving end of being treated poorly. Correct. For for what you look like. That's Um, right. I learned that lesson young and I didn't like how it made me feel. And I wanted to make sure that no one else would feel that way. Right. And also to encourage people to not let anybody else victimize them. Which is so important. And it's very challenging, especially in times like this, to stand up against. When did you realize that your values and your beliefs aligned with a traditional Republican? (laughs) Not the Republican today. That's not Republicanism. But yeah, the, the, the Ronald Reagan type Republican people like yes. that, normal people. I wanted to be clear. And again, this is not a political podcast. Right. When did you realize that what your beliefs are and your values aligned with what a traditional Republican sort of umbrella was? My mom started listening to talk radio. A lot of people talk about this now, the, the phenomenon of talk radio and its influence on Republican and conservative politics. But I can say that my family, my mom and I, were both people who are who came from the talk radio world influencing our political belief system. And there was a talk radio host in New York, the New York City area called Bob Grant. And he was basically the predecessor of Rush Limbaugh. Now, Rush Limbaugh was not always as crazy and obnoxious as he is right now. I mean, he always was a big personality, but he was a bit more ideological back in those days. So we're talking like 88, 89. And the things that they were talking about, you know, this is the Reagan era and then into George H.W. Bush started to make sense to my mom because my mom was like, wait a minute. She thought she was a liberal. I mean, she's a child of the 60s and 70s, you know, like women's lib and, you know, and all that stuff. But she realized that there were aspects of the, the Reagan message and the conservative message of empowering the individual, smaller government, local politics, because those like basic tenets of of what republicanism represented made sense to my mom as someone who did, you know, build herself up from her bootstraps and and worked hard and and wasn't going to let anyone tell her that she should have had an abortion when she was 21. Like, what was she thinking about, you know, giving up her career and raising a child on her own? Those kinds of things made sense. So I think my mom was a compassionate conservative before George Bush popularized that term because it was always really about we have a heart for people and what was the best avenue to create an opportunity in this world for others to be successful. That aligned with Republican politics back then. Right. But I thought that George H.W. Bush was going to be a warmonger and get us into World War III because that was the Democrat narrative back then about Republicans. You know, they were warmongers and that Reagan was the worst. And I was like, oh, my gosh, when George W. Bush, H.W. Bush won in 88, I cried because I thought I wasn't going to graduate high school because World War III was going to happen. Uh-huh. So the change came in high school when my mom started listening to talk radio and I started realizing, whoa, wait, hold on. I heard the other side. And I was like, oh, well, that that makes a lot more sense to me. They're not warmongers. They're just strong national defense. And we have an enemy out there who's, you know, the Cold War. I'm like, oh. And that is really where the turn came. By the end of high school, I was volunteering for the George H.W. Bush re-election campaign 
and chose to go to George Washington University. You're a lifelong Republican in the most traditional definition of what a Republican is. And obviously the definition of Republican um, has sort of deviated. Perverted and co-opted. Which brings me to this, and and I don't want to sort of get into a whole debate about what the Republican Party is or the values that it has now. Yeah, that's a separate podcast. (laughs) Yeah, that's on your podcast, girl. If you guys want to know, you can come listen to my podcast, Honestly Speaking with Tara. (laughs) So I don't want to get into that, but here you are. You've really combined who you are personally and your political views in your podcast, which is called Honestly Speaking with Tara. At the start of every episode, you start off by saying, telling the truth at a time during universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Break that down for me and why that was important for you to kick off every episode saying that and what you want to do with your podcast. Yeah. When I discovered that quote is an Orwell quote, or allegedly, they're not sure if he ever actually said it or not, but that's who gets the credit for it. In a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act resonated with me because I have been unapologetically honest and a truth teller my whole life. So when I saw that and I saw the environment that we are living in now and understanding the history behind and what happens when you have an uninformed citizenry and how dangerous propaganda and demagoguery can be, it has never ended well in history. I made the decision that that would be the defining motto for who I am and what I represent during the time that we live in right now. And I never realized how difficult it was for people to actually stand up when it when the time called for it, because it always came so natural to me. But this time that we live in now, it really is a time of universal deceit. You know, people often say that the devil's greatest weapon is deception. It's not hatred, it's deception. And I'm watching that unfold every single day and have been for the last five or six years, horrified by the level of deception that is being put forth in this country and how many people buy into it. So it has become, as someone who has decided to stand up against the go against the flow, be the nonconformist that I've always been. It has really been put to the test this time because I put everything on the line professionally to speak out against what I saw as, uh, you know, hypocrisy and just indecency and dishonesty and dangerous behavior. And so what better way to encompass that than that, that term? Because we really are living in a time of universal deceit and speaking out, especially as a Republican, I'm, I'm an apostate. I mean, I went through to those to that side. You know, I am I have betrayed. I'm the, the you know, I'm treasonous. I literally received death threats during the 2016 campaign, which is something I mean, I was used to as a as a minority female Republican. You get a certain amount of incoming for being different politically than what people expect. And so I was used to that kind of incoming of being called certain. That names. is so messed up that you're even used to that. But that's yeah, a whole other conversation. I, you know, it's listen, politics ain't beanbag. It's a tough sport. And you learn to get thick skin early. And I attribute my, you know, tough Jersey girlness to being able to handle that because not everyone can, you know, whatever. Yeah. 2016 was a whole different level to the point where CNN actually would provide armed security for me when I would come in and out of the studios in New York because of the level of threat. My husband, God bless him, is a 20 year federal law enforcement 
professional. I, I don't disclose for whom just to protect him because people are crazy. That's fine. But just know that my husband is a badass and I'm very, very well protected. But the threats were so vicious, so racist and sexist and violent. Uh, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen and enough for the FBI to get involved more than once in that some of the, yeah, some of the level is? just like threatening to behead me and hang me from a tree and oh burn me. God. And, oh yeah, it was nuts. And which is why God bless CNN for taking those threats seriously. And I wasn't the only one. I mean, it, it became a thing with a lot of us who are that on air. Yeah. And now I look back and probably a lot of that was Russian you know, those the Russian bots, because we know that the Russians were focusing on race, racial division, and because a lot of it couldn't be traced. Nonetheless, at the time, we didn't really know all that. And it was just like, wow, when I say it's a revolutionary act, it's like, we're literally are fighting for the soul of our nation to steal a phrase from Joe Biden, which was so appropriate, because it's true. I consider, you know, myself to be a, a um, willing general in this in this fight. To, to basically, you know, save the, the health of our democracy. So I sort of wanted to frame this for people who may not have, you know, a reference point. Getting any kind of criticism can be really tough for anyone. But for people in the public eye, things are really, really intensified. So when things are good, it can be really awesome and intoxicating. But when it's bad, it can be scalding. So imagine that and then take it a step further. To be in the media, you know, you're out in front and you're standing against the majority. That's a lot to take on. Now, my question to you, Tara, is you have that volume cranked all the way up. <laughs> I think the knob is ripped off, to be honest with you. And especially in this time that we're living in, which is, again, we've talked about, it's completely cuckoo bananas. For you, being a person on camera, being a person, additionally, uh, as a Republican, you being a woman, being a minority, and sort of looping all of those things into one package, can you describe the unbelievable, what I would imagine, crushing pressure that you face on a daily basis to not join the political party? What is it in you that says, I'm going to withstand the pressure of not conforming with the majority. And again, this is a political situation. So everything is really cranked up. Yeah, you can't escape it. So what is it with you, within you that you say, I'm going to continue to not only withstand the political pressure, and then also not only not joining it, but you're out in front talk, speaking up against what you're seeing. Yeah, So what is. is it with you? I would say that it's because my mom instilled in me very young to be unapologetic for who God made me. And when you have a founding principle like that, where you are confident in who you are, where you never apologize for who you are, then it makes it that much easier to stand on those principles when the going gets tough. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people out there who did not have the benefit of having an amazing mom or an amazing em emotionally strong uh, foundation instilled in them where they don't have that same well to draw that strength from. So I am incredibly blessed that I had that. 
And because we didn't live a charmed life and because everything didn't, wasn't always easy for us. And, you know, we earned everything. I earned everything. And I had a job when I was 13 and my mom, she, she worked as a travel agent. She worked as a cocktail waitress. She worked as a a veterinary technician. My mom always did whatever it took to get it done. I saw my mom doing those things and admired her for it. And my grandmother was like that too. You know, you do what it takes. As set mayor women, you do what it takes to get it done. And when it came to making the decision to stand up for what was right, it was actually very easy for me because that's it's a lot easier to be on the right side of things when that's naturally congruent with who you are. Right. If you are comfortable in your principles and and know who you are, it's easy to take that route. But there are a lot of people who aren't as confident in their principles and values and will go with with whichever way the wind blows or where it's financially beneficial or where you're going to get the most attention, um, which a lot of people I have to say, unfortunately, that I've known for a very long time, they made that choice. And it was heartbreaking for me. It was excruciating to watch people who I known for a very long time, who I've worked with, who I consider friends, who I respected, who I thought were honest and upstanding people, completely sell out every single thing they ever stood for in order to get attention, time on Fox News, you know, contracts and and positions in the White House because they had never gotten that level of attention or relevance before. And I've lost really close friendships over this. One of my closest girlfriends is like a sister to me, took that route. And it has been like the Civil War. You know, they say it was brother against brother in the Civil War. I feel like that now, like we're in a cold Civil War. And I'm a general in the Union, and she's a general in the Confederacy. And that is just excruciating for me. But I just pray for her and for others made the wrong decisions. And that's all I can do because I know that I'm on the right side of history. And I know that God put me in this position to help encourage and and give a voice to others who want to try to fight back against this because it takes people standing up to make a difference. Because where would we be as a country if we didn't have people that stood up when it wasn't popular to do the right thing? As great as that is, you're taking some serious, serious hits. That's true. I mean, talking about threats on your life, regardless of where it's coming from, mm-hmm. that's some serious stuff. So it's definitely not normal. <laughs> what keeps you going? They say politics is a blood sport, but, you know, uh, I never thought that it would literally mean that. Yeah, this is a completely different thing. But I, I do want to not diminish that the hits you're taking are very, very serious ones. And so I don't know how you're doing it. Well, there's a lot of wine involved. and <laughs> Red or white? <laughs> I am a red person. Okay. The way I deal with it, and I actually get this question a lot because you're right. I, For me, I don't internalize how out of the ordinary my position is in this whole mess. I just kind of take it in stride because I've, I've always been a fighter. It's just a nat- natural posture for me to be in the, you know, in the fighter pilot seat here doing what it takes to get the, you know, make sure the right thing happens. But I'm grateful that I have an amazing husband who is my best friend in the whole world who is ride or die with me on this, on everything. And it's it's important to have those types of healthy outlets. I actually do have outlets that I make sure that I, I participate in. I absolutely love music. 
and all genres from classical music to like 80s rocker hair bands to, you know, to Jay-Z and Biggie. I love to travel. I love the beach. I will go out and sit on my in my backyard and and watch my hummingbirds. Like we have become birders. I laugh at myself because I was like, oh, yes, my Bird and Blooms magazine came. And I said, oh, my God, did I just say that? What is wrong with me? But these are things that you have to find beauty in simple things. I am tough on air. Yes. That is who I am, too. I mean, we in our family, we call it argubating. We have very spirited arguments in our family. And it's, um, you know, my mom and I will go back and forth and we might yell about stuff. And five minutes later, we're laughing. And it was something that my husband had to get used to because he's like, wait, what? It's all good. It's argubating. It's what we've been doing our whole lives, you know. But there is another side of me where I think that more people need to see that it's not always all about just the very vicious in your face Tara Setmayer that you see on CNN debating these morons about their hypocrisy. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not just that. There's I have balance in life and and that's really really important. So music and travel and the shore and my husband and my mom and my cat Tiki and you just have to have balance in life. Find something that brings you joy and it doesn't have to be some big extravagant thing. You don't have to be on like a yacht somewhere in the south of France. It could be something as simple as watching your hummingbirds in your backyard. Right. Well, you know, being a human being, there's a million things that can coexist in one person. Absolutely. The second thing that I sort of wanted to point out is, you know, you have to be as outspoken as you are because you have to push back as hard as you're getting it. So, you know, hats off to you for standing up. One of the many issues that the world finds itself in because of a whole list of reasons, there's a real fear or separation with diversity and representation and inclusion, you know, people don't want to have more diversity, mm-hmm. X, Y, Z, pick your group. So from your point of view, as a Republican in the traditional sense, how do we all benefit from embracing more inclusion, more diversity? How does it make us better? The United States was about diversity initially. E pluribus unum out of many one. That was the founding motto, and it meant different things to different people, but the concept, the principle of it is still applicable. And the United States was born out of different people coming here and embracing what the American experiment represents. Imperfect, we have an imperfect union, but part of empowering individuals and embracing that diversity is what helps us become a more perfect union. That is part of the the mission. I just think that the people who who fear the other, who fear who who place an emphasis on maintaining the status quo of certain power dynamics are just insecure folks who don't really believe what the Constitution says about or what the Declaration of Independence says about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and the inalienable rights and equality of everyone, where all men are created equal. Those people really don't believe that because if they did, they would not be pushing these very authoritarian type of um, political dynamics that we see now. Right. Because it's so antithetical. As a Republican, we're not about not embracing diversity. We're about empowering individual. That in, Your individuality, however you define that, can flourish in, in America. That's what it's about. Because you can be whatever you want in America. Yeah. 
And no, it wasn't always you know, accessible to everyone else. It wasn't accessible to women. It wasn't accessible to people of color. Right. It wasn't accessible to a lot of, if you weren't part of the white male pa- patriarchy, you were shit out of luck for a long time in the U.S. <laughs> right. But again, the, the, the genius of the founding fathers and, and our founding documents is that the principles applied. You know, the collective idea of all men created equal, you know, it meant humanity. That's why those documents have endured. And that's why America flourished for so long, even with her imperfections and her sins, whether it was slavery or, you know, women not being able to vote or own property and all those things that still that plagued us for so long. They were eventually rectified. You have to remember, America is very young in, in the in the in the world history of, of democracies and governing countries. You have to fight for it. When Ronald Reagan said that freedom isn't something that is, it has to be earned. It has to be passed down from generation. Otherwise, you could wake up one day and wonder, well, what happened? Where did it go? Right. You know, we have a social responsibility as Americans to make sure that we are good stewards of our republic. Otherwise, it can go the way of tyranny, which is what I see happening now. It's just so incredibly important for us to make sure that diversity of spirit, of ideas. I mean, the country was born on dissent. Right. That's why our founding fathers made sure that the minority view, not minority ethnic, but minority ideology, was so represented that there was not a tyranny of the majority. So it's amazing to me to see how off the rails and, and perverted the Republicanism of today is, and even conservatism, because there aren't many people who represent the ideology in the mainstream now as it was intended. Right. And it's not to be divided. But the Republican Party, this is where I go back to how I've been critical of them as a party. They've trafficked, unfortunately, in dividing and playing on some of the white fears in this country, going back to the 60s and the law and order and Southern strategy stuff that Nixon employed. Right. Unfortunately, they've returned to that. There were times within since then where like George W. Bush tried to be more inclusive and get away from that. And even after 2012, when the Republican Party had the autopsy and recognized that, listen, we can't survive as a party if we don't start embracing diversity and, you know, different demographics here. It's the way the country is going. Right. But that all went to hell. They threw that out and went the way uh, that went backwards, in my opinion. And it takes more of us who think the way I do. And there are a lot of us out there, and thankfully there's become more of a collective effort, but we have to set that example and say that this white nationalist populism bullshit that's going on today is not the future of this country or of the party, or it's going to go the way of the Whigs. Well, I mean, this is a conversation that can go on and should go on, but Tara, for now, can you help sign us off? Let me know who you are and what you represent. Oh, that's a great question. I'm Tara Setmayer, and I represent an authentic voice of reason, truth, strength of conviction that encourages others to stand up for what's right and to never be bullied into silence. Thank you to Tara Setmayer for coming to hang out with us here on Reppin. Be sure to listen to her podcast, Honestly Speaking with Tara, and follow her on social media. Links are provided in the episode description. Because of the upcoming elections, we will be taking a break. Reppin is about representation of all kinds. We hope this podcast is not only insightful and entertaining, but that it starts conversations, widens perspectives, encourages diversity, empowerment, inclusion, love, and equality for all. If our guests have shown us anything, it's that we have a voice and it's important we use it and make positive contributions. 
We'll be back right before Thanksgiving with a very special show and a guest I'm super excited about. She's an eight-time Emmy-winning actress. What? Eight? And truly a beloved daytime talent. From Days of Our Lives, Mary Beth Evans is on the show. Hi, it's Mary Beth Evans, and I'm coming to Reppin'. Make sure you're caught up on all the episodes of Reppin'. Subscribe and share. It's available on all of your favorite platforms. And let me know your thoughts. Leave a review or tweet me at Reppin Podcast. And you can always find me on Instagram, where you'll get some extra content. The handle there is Reppin underscore podcast. As always, thanks to Nelson Pinheiro for all of the love and care he brings to the show. And love and thanks to Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Get out and vote. Use your voice. Because this is the time. So stand up and represent. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.